Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing the second episode of the first season of His Dark Materials, The Idea of North. This episode was written by showrunner Jack Thorne, who also created Cast Offs, a parody TV show of Survivor. Tom Hooper returned to direct this episode. Uh, he's directed a lot of TV in his career, including the seven-part miniseries John Adams, which aired on HBO. I recognize that name because he's a character in Hamilton. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just going to jump in here and actually say that Jack Thorne is also the dude who wrote the screenplay for The Cursed Child, which I didn't realize. Or at least I had I'd known that like months ago and then I forgot. No, he wrote the, the Theodore staged Harry Potter a thingy that everyone hates. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Though it should be noted that the actual plot points were came up with by J.K. Rowling. He just turned them into a screenplay. So might not be Jack's fault that it sucks. I just thought that was an interesting sort of young adult book series connection. I don't know any of those people, so I don't have anything to say. You don't know who J.K. Rowling is? No, 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 I'm no, no. Impressed. <laughs> Jack Horn and Tom <laughs> Hooper. Of course I know who J.K. Rowling is. John Adams was the second president of the United States. Really? How dare you? Yes. Okay, actually, yes, I remember that song lyric. Okay, yep. <laughs> Do our listeners know I'm Canadian and not like a doofus? Anyways, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Mrs. Coulter brings Lyra to her extravagant art deco apartment and then to the Arctic Institute for lunch. Lyra wants to help with the search for Roger, but Mrs. Coulter puts her off. The Egyptians find the filthy room where the kidnapped children had been held, but it's too late. They've already been moved. They find a sweater belonging to Billy Costa and bring it back to his mother. Lyra and Pan go to investigate creepy noises they've been hearing at night and see Mrs. Coulter's monkey demon venturing too far from her body to be normal. The Magisterium sends two officials to talk to Mrs. Coulter about problems with the General Ablation Board. Too many children are disappearing and people are starting to notice. Lyra tries to spy on them and gets caught, and Mrs. Coulter is pissed at everyone. Lyra, the Magisterium, herself, her demon, everyone. After the officials leave, Lyra refuses to remove the handbag that she's been keeping the alethiometer in, and Mrs. Coulter's demon attacks Pan until she submits. Mrs. Coulter accidentally lets slip that Lord Azrael is not Lyra's uncle, but actually her father. Dun dun dun. Lord Boreal goes to Jordan College on behalf of the Magisterium to investigate the possible heresy and finds out that Lord Asriel and the Master of the College have been lying to them about having Grumman's skull. Boreal steps through a portal into another world. Our world! 
second dun-dun-dun moment <laughs> and meets up with a man to ask him to look for Grumman in that world. Mrs. Coulter goes to visit the kidnapped children, tells them she's taking them on an adventure north, and has them write letters to their parents, which she promptly burns. While Mrs. Coulter is gone, Lyra and Pan break into her study and find blueprints for a scary-looking machine that they don't understand. Mrs. Coulter throws a fancy cocktail party, where a journalist pulls Lyra aside and tells her that Mrs. Coulter is in charge of the gobblers who are stealing children. Lord Boreal kills the journalist by squishing her butterfly demon, but Lyra manages to grab the alethiometer and escape from the apartment. Lyra and Pan wander the dark streets of London, and Lyra is attacked and captured by a mysterious dark figure. First impressions, or overall impressions of the episode? I thought this episode was fantastic. I was so glad that we finally got to see the relationship between Lyra and Pan, and like really get that dynamic. Uh, We also got a little bit of Lyra's line uh, that I missed a lot last time. And I thought the decision to go into other worlds earlier than in the books was super confident and bold. And I'm so excited to see what they do with that. I pretty much feel the exact same way about everything. And they, I feel like everything we talked about last week that we didn't get, we got in this episode. It was fabulous. That's how I felt about it, that really the previous episode was like a kind of necessary setup for them doing this thing that was probably like more their pitch. We want to kind of like weave all three books together in a way and not only have the other worlds, but we're going to have these really great dynamics between like two characters in a room with their demons and like everything is like firing Mm-hmm. exactly the way that you know it feels like the writers are in the in the groove that they want to be in yeah completely agree so do we want to go on to favorite parts yes um so my favorite part was when lyra first arrives at the arctic institute i thought daphne keen was so fucking good in that scene like her excitement and her curiosity were just so delightful and and yeah, made me really feel like this is the character uh, that I know and love. Mm-hmm. And I also really loved Lyra's line later on. Um, Did you see the equipment? The blade? To cut what? Where are we, Ben? And what is she? What do you think the master meant about this in my phone? Lord Azrael. Perhaps we got to keep it safe. was just like <laughs> such a perfect encapsulation of of like that feeling as a child when you're just like man you're like starting to realize that adults are fallible and it's not that everyone is good at their job and knows what they're doing like everyone's a fuck up <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh my favorite part was how they've really worked in things from later books both in like the big plot ways with going to other worlds and in much smaller character ways that it just really shows how much care they're putting into this and how much they really want to do it right. I don't need, okay, I hesitate in bringing this up because everybody's going to be bringing this shit up. But another book series that HBO was involved with adapting that maybe didn't have an ending. <laughs> We're <Right. laughs> in this one, they have already started foreshadowing parts of the ending. 
So, and that just gives me a lot of confidence in the show. Mm. And it makes me really curious what you're talking about because I don't remember how the series ends. Or do you mean the end of you, the end of the book or the end of the? Oh, series? I mean the end of the series. I mean yeah, the ending yeah, of book I've, three. Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about, and that makes me also very excited. Uh, I'm just excited about the way that the show looks. Like I think it's amazing. A lot of the um, stuff that we got in some of the trailers comes from this episode, especially like Lord Boreal kind of like kneeling down in the chapel at the college. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then the master's raven flies over his head. Just the way that that whole thing is framed is like exciting just to see that or like the his demon that's a snake coming out of his sleeve and kind of like slithering all over everything just looks fabulous. I really love the part with like McPhail in the magisterium and he's got like that symbol behind him, almost like a halo. Are those horns? Is that a cross? It's, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just creepy looking, uh, eerie and just like pitch perfect. Like just the way the show looks is really fabulous. You know, there's like a scene where like Pan jumps off the bed and then becomes a moth and flies up. And I was like, wow, that was like effortless and perfect yeah that's that's what i want you to do along those same lines there's a bit at the end where they're escaping and ermine pan jumps off the ledge and is then a bird yeah i like that one was good too that was really good like every time that i watched that my breath caught i was like oh no pan and then he like becomes a bird and i'm like oh right yeah of course yes he did that on purpose i do think and i get why they're doing this but i do think there are a bunch of scenes where i'm like lyra or like Pan would be on Lyra in that situation. He wouldn't be like walking beside her, but that's more money, mm-hmm. I presume. So that's fine. Oh, yeah. Having it like interact with the physical bodies is a lot harder yeah. in terms of CG. It all looks really good, though. I think the demons look great in this one. They do. And, you know, just by having like only two characters in a room or something like that, you get rid of that kind of um, problem we were having in the previous episode with crowds. It's not, you know, there are crowd scenes in this and, and it is a problem there. But like, I think it's way better than the previous one. Yeah, especially the uh, the cocktail party. They did a mm-hmm. good job there mm-hmm. with having what I thought was enough animals around. An the appropriate with, number of demons. Yeah. <laughs> the scene with the Egyptians on the boat, there was maybe one demon and there was like six dudes. I was like, are they all just sitting on the roof? Because that's dumb. Well, okay. <laughs> so I thought I noticed in one of the crowd scenes that all of the Egyptians had bird demons and mm-hmm. they all looked very similar. Or maybe it was just a flock of birds happened to be going by, but I thought they were trying to imply that all of the Egyptians had bird demons, which is like a little bit weird and maybe problematic. And also like all of the magisterium people had insect demons. Why is it problematic? We talked before about how it's kind of weirdly classist and predetermined to have people's uh, demons, the form of their demons match their occupation. Like, well, I guess if your demon settles as a beetle, you have to go join this death cult. Yeah, I mean, that, and I think the Egyptians, like, see themselves a certain way and see everyone around them has a bird, and a bird is, you know, you got to go from boat to land. That's true. Yeah, it's easier with a bird. How much of this is how you see yourself and how much of it is actually like determined all right but like what we haven't even seen like ma costa's demon yeah that's that's true true. and that's really weird because we get a lot of emotion from her 
Mm, where the, yeah. where the where's her where's her soul where's this emotion coming from yeah you're right we haven't seen it at all we haven't seen tony's demon since the weird party scene as far as i remember like it might have been one of the birds that you see and mm. like Fredericorm does have a cat so there is at least like, mm, have not... we seen the autumn cat yet maybe it'll be a bird <laughs> he put it down in the you do see alley. it very briefly yeah Oh, okay. Yeah, for like one second. <laughs> I guess I wasn't paying enough attention. But it's super, because I remember I was I was messaging you guys and I was like, "Where's the fucking cat? Give it to me." Yeah. And then a minute later, you do see it, and I was like, "Okay, thank you." Not at all how I pictured it. Uh, least favorite parts. I did not like the cardinal. He looked to me like he was trying to be a caricature of Lord Varys from Game of Thrones, and it just did not work for me. It was like. Too aggressively creepy with a weird posture and the voice, and it just ended up looking, like, silly to me. I don't know. I didn't buy it, considering that everyone else in the Magisterium has looked pretty normal. I apologize for disturbing you. My needs were too great. Cotton. The General Oblation Board is causing trouble again. A recent Egyptian raid trying to find those damn children. Did they? No. Give them credit. The General Oblation Board's policy of moving them constantly and quickly seems to have borne fruit. But they risk so much. I I like the idea of the Cardinal. I could see how the performance and stuff doesn't work for you. But I like the idea that, like, the Magisterium is not, like, vertical. And that's what I like about the Cardinal. We see that it's, like, very fractious and there's different... You know, he's McPhail isn't in charge. He has people who can boss him the way that he's bossing Boreal. And so, like, it gives a lot of texture to the Magisterium. So I like that he's there, but I could see how the performance doesn't work for you. I'm trying to think if I have an actual least favorite bit, but I can't really think of anything. So I will just go with this. But they cut out the best scene from the book when Lyra lies to that dude at the coffee shop about her murderer father. Oh, and I yeah. will never forgive them for oh. depriving us of that amazing Lyra moment. I like that they had her captured by the singing fox guy who got Billy and they just cut out the confusing bit where she was captured by not gobblers. And then like there was two people <laughs> yeah. in London stealing children. This A much this, better decision. Yeah. For sure. I don't know that I have a least favorite part, um, although what you mentioned about Ma Costa not having a demon while she is so upset actually does bother me. Yeah. Um, yeah, like... Based on, like, other stuff that I noticed in this episode. The the demon should be, like, racing around and, like, displaying her agitation. Or yeah. trying to comfort her. Or, like, her. cuddling yeah. up to her. Yeah. Okay. Or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, any problematics with this episode? Uh, so we have the character come in. I can't remember if she's named. We get the reporter, mm-hmm. which is really like the first woman of color that we've had in the series with like a serious kind of speaking part, performance part. And um, I don't like that she is incompetent where she's just like very like bald face, just sneaking around. Like, can you get me some documents? Can you like... The initials you see, General Ablation Board. Cobbler. She's involved in the... She is the Ablation Board. It's entirely her own project. 
You didn't know? Who's that with Lyra? She's a journalist. Well, we need to get her out of here. I got to go. Lyra, Lyra. Papers, letters, anything could be hugely useful. She's not sneaky at all. And then mainly she's there. I think it's a good bit of writing because it's doing like two or three things at the same time. Uh, But she's mostly a prop to like help us understand how dangerous Boreal and Coulter are and that they work together, um, even though he's supposed to be there, presumably to like rein her in. Um, Coulter like basically points out this reporter and says like take care of it and boreal does that and i don't think it's a great look to have a white woman silencing a woman of color on the show in the second episode i mean that's an evil act but like also like not great yeah i uh, hmm yes i agree sorry i don't know why i was hesitating there i don't really have anything to add i guess is what i'm saying I agree totally with your read on it, but I also think that that actress absolutely killed the role. Yeah, she did a great job with not that much on the page. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like she just had a lot of warmth and and like charisma in the role. I mean, I agree with your analysis, but also like would it be that much better if they gave the role to a white woman? So like that actress didn't have the exposure. Well, when I point out problematics, I'm not trying to, like, um, say it should be done differently or something like that. Mostly I'm trying to inoculate against the uh, unconscious effect that it can have on you. If you notice these things, then it can't kind of reinforce the idea that, yes, white women should be in control of women of color's voices. Like, you can notice that and be like, ah, yeah, I got to remember that this is a problem. That's a good point. I get, for my part in this scene, I was very upset about like a world building thing. So I didn't, I wasn't paying attention to anything else. I noticed that too. <laughs> but I think I've got that down in our spoilers section so that I can really yeah. dive into it. So um, the only other thing, I don't know if this is actually problematic. I kind of like it. Um, and I'll see, we'll see where it goes. I, I do think that it's probably unconscious and not on purpose, though. You get uh, Lord Boreal in this episode going through a window into our Oxford, I'm guessing. It, it sure does seem like our Oxford. And this just made me think of right-wing anxieties that are happening in Britain right now about like brown Islamic immigrants sneaking into the country I'm just talking about like xenophobia. I'm not talking about like reality Um, to kind of like change the culture to Sharia law. And um, you've got Lord Boreal here, who is an operative of the magisterium, which is a fascist, you know, religious institution sneaking into our world, you know, to expand the influence of the magisterium, presumably, um, or at least do its business. And so I think that like, on some unconscious level, it would speak to those anxieties, or maybe they're doing it on purpose to kind of like wrestle with these ideas that are, you know, current and relevant, uh, but maybe not. 
I, I like that it's happening and I want to see where they go with it. But if they're not doing it on purpose, it's a little bit like, again, you should notice it and be like, xenophobia is bad. I agree with that. That xenophobia is bad? <laughs> yep. I think we it's can. It's controversial. Yeah. It is. It is a little I, controversial, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't really see it as like immigration in that sense, just because his accent is the same, right? And he's like clearly so comfortable, you know, like he has a car and a phone and all of that. That's like not really the the image. He's so classy. He looks posh as fuck is what I'm saying. You know, no, and yeah. like the Im- the like xenophobic immigrant thing, it's like they're not wearing beautiful woolen coats. <laughs> Lord Boreal has great hair, by the way. Yes, he does. Yes, 100%. Um, All right, shall we dive into the meat? I Mm, I don't... No, I don't don't want to do that. (laughs) Are you insulting our conversation thus far? No, not at all. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't even know how to really go from here. So that was my... Well, so I think you wanted to talk about Miss Coulter, and I had some other things that I also wanted to talk about Mrs. Coulter. So this is true. Mrs. Coulter in this show is the best, and I love her. Just like in the book, she's also the best, and you also love her. Yes. No, this is not to be saying that I agree with what she's doing. I just think she's a very well-written character, and I love what they're doing with her in this show with making her a lot more human and a less, less, less boogeyman. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of moments in this episode where she shows, like, genuine emotional vulnerability in a way that we never get to see in the book and so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're kind of doing the same thing with both lord asriel and mrs coulter which makes so much sense i think with tv being a visual medium and you like want your actors to be able to um give the characters more depth and complexity that it's harder to do in like a close third person Uh, yeah like book narration where we're just like so close to lyra the whole time and we don't get that insight uh either like visual or otherwise into asriel and mrs coulter i love just that one scene where lyra flops onto her bed and mrs coulter stands at the doorway and looks in at her and ruth wilson is just amazing like just looking at her but you can see so much and it's fabulous it's so good I also really loved the scene um, when they're done with the bath and she's just kind of like sitting there pondering and then suddenly like comes to her senses and you can, you, there's like so much uh, just like under the surface there, you know. I love how she yanks out that plug. She, you know, she looks all like hurt and wistful and then all of a sudden like she goes hard and she's just like, yeah, get yeah. out of there, water. Yeah, exactly. You can tell there's just like so much under the surface. I do wish the monkey was a little creepier. I love the way they had it facing the wall, though. Like, that's so visually striking. That was good. I think it, yeah, it like says something about, you know, like the way that demons interact with humans that are not their humans and like modesty and everything. Mm hmm. Interesting. So that's um That's what I took it as. Okay. Let that the monkey should not look at Lyra because she's naked in the tub. That was how I interpreted it. I don't, did you interpret it differently? No, I I like that. I saw it as a piece of like this larger relationship between 
Mrs. Coulter and the monkey, you know, when you compare it to Lyra and Pan, who are often like cuddling with each other or um, are just affectionate. And then Coulter and the monkey are very the opposite. You know, it, that monkey looks like it's ashamed of itself. It's kind of like looking over its shoulder and like, oh, I wish that I was involved in this nice thing. It seems like on a, on a certain level, because the demons are you, that Lyra loves herself on some level and that Mrs. Coulter hates herself oh. on, on another level. I like that. Do you know what I mean? Read of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 100%. Yes. Well, and the way she slaps the demon in this that's episode, so it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's how you know she's evil. Man, it's so, Mrs. Coulter is so fucking good. Because, like, the thing about this abusive person, too, is that just how fragile she is. She has this front that she's putting so much energy into to the point where, like, Anything that can crack through that, like anything that makes her angry enough or like um, surprises her enough, then she just like shatters and she becomes a complete mess. And that's exactly how it is for abusive people, especially like abusive parents where they just they have like an idea of what the child should do so that they the parent feels safe in that situation and when the child like steps outside of those boundaries then they like lose their mind and become abusive and she's like the picture of that so ruth wilson deserves an emmy (laughs) oh yeah and that's that's all there is to that she's amazing we give emmys to british tv shows is that a thing that happens it's airing on hbo so i don't see why you wouldn't I don't know enough about award shows, though, to make that a BAFTA then. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe while we're on the topic of Miss Colder, we should also just talk a little bit about the dad reveal, um, because it happens differently in the show than it does in the book. And I think that was an amazing adaptive choice. It was very good. You can't treat me like this. My uncle won't let you. When has that man ever done anything for you? He's done everything! He's done nothing! He's a failure of a man and a failure of a father! I love the way that Ruth Wilson plays it where she looks surprised at herself. Yeah. And they're both, like, startled. And one of the really good things about that is the degree to which she is constantly, like, gaslighting and lying to Lyra. And then it's when she gets very emotional and so furious that the truth comes out. Yeah. Like she loses control and says the true thing. And the true thing like stuns everybody. And, and they, it just they can't ends talk. the fight immediately. Mm-hmm. That's why part of me was wondering, like, did she do that on purpose just to like get Lyra to stop whatever she was doing? um but i went back and watched it again and no i think it's pretty clear that it's an accident i also thought it was an accident and just from a storytelling perspective i'm glad that they're breaking up lyra finding out the backstory of her life instead Mm -hmm. of it all just getting dumped on us all at once yeah well and exposition dumps work particularly poorly i think in a tv medium versus a book 
because like just having one character sit and yammer on for minutes and minutes can be yeah. I mean it can be done well but it's it's hard well I was go- I had assumed that they were going to do like a flashback but I mm. guess maybe they oh. won't who knows uh do okay you know what let's talk about what we think about the windows and crossing over into our world Yes. Which did not happen at all in the book. And I think it's hilarious it so good. because in the spoiler section last week, we were talking about how we thought, how we were wondering how they were going to do the windows. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> it's funny, too, how they set up the scene because there's like, he's like very slowly and deliberately walking up the stairs and there's like a ton of cinemagraphic attention on like his shoes and the leaves crumbling and like... And honestly, the first time through, I was like, what the fuck is going on with these stairs? Like, this <laughs> seems like undue attention. I almost actually missed the window thing. And I had to, like, go rewind and go back and be like, wait, what is happening? <laughs> he goes from one step to the other and, like, he doesn't, like, he steps through and his foot doesn't come through the other side. And I was like, oh, what a cool visual choice. Like, you don't have to say anything. Like, you get it right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am of two minds about the look of the window. Because it looks great. And it shows you clearly what it is and how it works, the way that they've done it. But, like, the whole points of the windows in the book is that they're kind of just hidden everywhere. And you can just accidentally find one. But if they've all got that, like, glowy stuff around the edge, <laughs> they're not. they're not very hidden. Like... I don't know. So it's an interesting design choice. And I don't really see how in in a visual perspective they could have done it any other way. But it'll be interesting to see how certain people may or may not discover them later. Anyways, that's my non-spoilery discussion there. I did like the um, kind of mirroring effect that it has as he's like about to go through. You see like three or four images of him as if the there's some kind of distortion going on and then when he crosses over and he's um like at a cafe or something they do a similar effect with him uh sitting there and we're kind of looking at him through the glass wall of the cafe and there's like three or four kind of images of him and i was like oh neat like this is like a thing for the show a look I love how excited that guy is about his demon and how irritated he is by the other guy's excitement because you know that is exactly how we would act if we ever ran into somebody (laughs) with a demon. Yes, yes, exactly. There's been some complications back home. Scary things, fun things, interesting things. Nothing you're going to tell me. You have better coffee than we do. Where's the snake? We don't always feel the need to have our demons on show all the time, Thomas. Two worlds both alike in so many ways, and you only seem to care about what this world can do for yours. You might be better to think about what your world can do for this one. Now he comes out. She. And I don't pay you to advise me. Um, just before that, when he's like looking for Grumman's skull in the crypt. Mm-hmm. I, okay. 
So he finds the skull, and the skull has a hole in it. I am not particularly knowledgeable about Japaning, but that is a giant fucking hole. It's about the size that I had imagined. I don't know. I don't think they make that big of a hole. Like you could, I have no idea. You could fit two fingers in there. I think they just like (laughs) scrape a little bit away. You know, when they were just using like a rock to scrape away some of your skull, they're not going to cut that big of a hole. Anyways, big hole. It was a giant fucking hole. I'm looking up images of it now, and it seems like about the right size. Really? Based on these the assorted selection of pictures that come up when you Google search trepanning. I don't know if I want to do that to myself. Um, but like, how how do you live through that? That's fucking crazy. That was a giant hole and I was not okay. The biggest danger, right, is like infection. And I don't think the size of the hole really maybe has that big of an impact on it. Like as soon as you open up the brain cavity, oh. you're kind of in trouble already. I feel like the, you know, another big danger is whatever you're using to carve the skull away hitting the brain. And the bigger the hole, the higher the potential for that. Anyways, the idea that Boreal immediately knew that this skull was not Grumman. I don't think he knew immediately. I think the demon had some sort of, like, mystical connection to it. I have, I have thoughts about that, but um, we can't talk about them here. Okay, so this is based on book knowledge, but I was thinking, like, what if there was some kind of, like, demon coin underneath the skull and they knew that it wasn't Grumman, they knew who it was, and then they put the proper coin there, and that was what the demon was using. I don't know. Huh. Just a a random thought that I had based on book knowledge. Maybe, I don't see, if it was a random person, though, like, why would it have been somebody from the college who was the only yeah, that's true. type of people, like, or Azriel could have just found somebody in the north and <laughs> murdered them. Would not be surprised. When you need a head, you need a head. <laughs> Either way, it just made me think of Shakespeare and, her, you know, when Hamlet finds the skull and how it must be a very particular looking skull in order to know who it belongs to or who it does not belong to. <laughs> okay, I have a bone to pick. Mm-hmm. So we see the Costa boat and Tony is wearing, you know, an old crappy stained t-shirt. Ma Costa, who's I believe, or I believe they called her Maggie in this. I think I said something like Margaret last week. Um, and she's wearing, you know, tattered overalls and they look not the best quality clothes. But then this very distinctive sweater that they find that belongs to Billy is what is presumably a hand knit vest. Like that shit takes time and effort. Why does he get this one, like, w- like everybody else's clothes looked very threadbare and thin, and he, he alone has this sweater. Because uh, he's a nerd. Did you see the glasses? And he needs the sweater vest to go with his glasses. I'm just saying, that was like some fair isle knitting. It was, it was a, it was a work of love, that sweater. And Tony didn't get that. Maggie Costa obviously has a favorite. I was going to say, don't you think that means that he's the favorite? Yeah. I mean, okay, because children are smaller, so you can, like, afford the good yarn, but in small quantities. That is actually true. I know. (laughs) 
Also, I mean, well, for a tick in the favor of Billy being the favorite, I'm pretty sure they've got different dads, so. Well, and also, Billy was the only one who has a portrait on the wall. Yeah. That was also, like, drawn, I'm pretty sure. So that's another artistry (laughs) that he gets. Yeah, I think he's definitely the favorite. Yeah. That's why she's so busted up. She would be like, why couldn't it have been you? It would be like, what, mom? No, never mind. <laughs> I didn't mean that. Yeah, if Tony had been the one taken, none of this would be happening because <laughs> Mount Costa would be like, yeah, that's fine. I've still got Billy. Well, I did notice like with the what you're saying with the Egyptians there um, on their costumes and stuff. I uh, really appreciate like the look of the ships, like how industrial they are. Um, you can see like the rivets behind people um, and stuff like that. And like the colors that they choose for them are all like browns and greens, like very earthy. And they've got like these long coats and stuff. So they all like look of a piece. And you get like the same kind of thing for Jordan College, which is lots of red colors, like deep browns. It's very warm there, you know. We just barely go back there for a second, but like the master of Jordan College is wearing purple. It's very dark, warm colors like that. And the whole setting there at the college is like medieval. And then, you know, like the magisterium is all like grays and blues. And Mrs. Coulter is in blue and she's dressing Lyra in blue. And so you're getting like this transition from in the previous episode, she had like a red dress And now she's like shifted to blue and Mrs. Coulter is like, blue is your color. Well, I think she's just saying that because blue is her color. I do love, though, the the mirroring of them. I mean, Mrs. Coulter puts Lyra in basically the little girl version of the same outfit that she's wearing. She's definitely, you know, trying to mold her in that way. And she's also like bringing her into that magisterial culture. Because even like Lord Boreal's suits are blue and like the the priests are like wearing blue and blue accents and stuff like that. So like everything is like blue or gray, you know, in in that world. And like I love just like all the attention to detail on in terms of like the costuming and like the settings. Like I love I really love the Art Deco stuff with Mrs. Coulter's penthouse and like the use of like art deco. There's the one scene when, when she is getting that dress, it's shot through like a gate. That's like this art deco kind of like abstract shape gate that makes it look like a highly stylized prison, like a gilded cage that Lyra is in just like subtle stuff like that just really works for me. And you contrast that with like our world you know, with the contemporary architecture, like I said, like, you know, you're looking at the cafe through the windows. So like the buildings are made of glass instead of the Art Deco, you know, uh, metal and stuff like that. And everybody's dressed in all different kinds of colors and stuff. It's it's not as like well-defined and segmented off as Lyra's world. I also love just because of the way that the episode breaks happen. Lyra ends up having a very different style in every episode, right? So, like, the first episode was, like, very kind of casual, not very fashionable academic outfits. And then this episode, uh, everything was, like, super tailored and well-made and, like, very classy. And then I'm assuming next episode 
low-key spoiler, it's going to be more, like, ratty, hand-me-down type outfits. And so I wonder, like, how long they're going to be able to keep this up of just, like, a completely different Lyra aesthetic every single episode. That's a good point. I just need them to get to the bit where she has the red hat so that I can see a good high-def picture of it. Because how did, <laughs> what, this, the knitting of this hat makes no sense to me. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's like an uneven rib. Who makes that choice? <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Caitlin's got that deep knitting knowledge it's, it's going not that on. Deep. But you'll notice even there, it's a red hat in, in the way that that links back to Jordan College mm-hmm. and the coloring that's all happening there. Kate, if I buy you fancy red yarn, will you make us all matching Lyra hats that we can wear while we podcast this winter? <laughs> See, the making of the hats isn't a problem. It's the... Going to the post office, getting an envelope, (laughs) mailing them to you. I can make three red hats, easy peasy, but you'll get them in about two years when I remember to go to a post office. Okay. (laughs) Speaking of needing a good shot of something, I need a good shot of all the symbols on the fucking alethiometer because we do not have like a good high def front on thing. And unlike in other interpretations of the alethiometer in an artistic way, the way that they've kind of like carved the pictures in instead of having them be miniature paintings, some of them are very hard to figure out. And it's very annoying for me when I'm trying to figure out what fucking symbol the needle landed on after Lyra asked where what, what Asriel was doing or where Asriel was or whatever. What, I forget what the question was because I needed to know. Where it landed. (laughs) So. I need help. Tell me where she is. Tell me where Roger is. Tell me. Where am I? Oh, that's real. Why didn't you tell me who he really was? Tell me anything. Something. And actually, while we're on the topic of the alethiometer, she kind of got it to work. Yes, yeah, yeah, after, yeah. After, like, many times of trying to get it to work and failing, she actually got the needles to move this time, but I don't think she noticed. No, because she mm-hmm. threw it away. Yeah. Now. Her eyes were closed, yeah. Okay, from what I could tell, when she threw it away, the question needles or whatever were on the helmet and the globe, and then one of them was kind of in between the chameleon and the sword. Now, when she throws it away and the answer needle swings, it is, of course, out of fucking focus. But (laughs) I could tell which symbol was the compass, because that's just a very distinct symbol, and it landed on the one that was two like counterclockwise like two slots counterclockwise from the compass so after comparing many 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 things and watching the opening credits a lot last night i narrowed it down to probably being either the marionette or the wild man because i think i saw feet i could be wrong there are a couple other ones that it could be and i had like a whole list of the things that it definitely wasn't and I put way too much work into this last night. <laughs> I was going to say, we couldn't tell who the overachiever is on this podcast. 
Um, I just okay. wanted to know. So, based on where the question needles were, does that match up to any of the questions that get explained in the book? Okay, so, hold on. What did I say? I said it was on helmet and globe, right? Definitely? Yeah, helmet, globe, and something else. So, the globe is politics, sovereignty, and fame. And the helmet... I mean, that's Asriel. Uh, means war, protection, and narrow vision. Asriel. Yeah, yeah. so... From my two guesses on where it landed, if it is the wild man and that seemed to be that seems to be the one that makes the most sense as an answer, the meaning being like number one is just wild man and then masculinity and lust. I mean, that's definitely why they took it out of focus, right? Because of this. Like, what does it mean? What does it say? I thought it was more just like if Lyra doesn't get to know the answer, we don't get to know right, the answer. Right. But um yeah, I'm I'm sure I will get one of these close-up pictures with everything in focus eventually and be able to figure out what it actually is, <laughs> and then I'll I'll feel good. I have a question for you, Kate. Is the alethiometer mm-hmm. how you pictured it? No, but I think they did that on purpose mm-hmm. uh, because the one in the bad movie was pretty much exactly how I pictured it. And, and it's I bigger, pres- right? And like... It looks more like a tool and less like something an artist made, if that makes any sense. You know, it looks more industrial. Yeah. This one's more Art Deco style, which is, like, Mm -hmm. very... Industrial is the exact right word, because, like, Art Deco is all about, like, mass-produced art. Not that the alethiometer was mass-produced, but it, like, fits in Mm -hmm. with that aesthetic. But, again, I think they did that on purpose, because they were trying very hard not to... Be the movie. Yeah. Yeah, to not look exactly like the movie. It's good to make it all feel like one world. Since they've changed the look of the world, you know, compared to the book, like everything needs to be changed a little bit. Because we've got Mm -hmm. like cars and all of this stuff that wasn't in the book. Like, basically, it seems like technology has progressed like 30 years from what was portrayed in the book. Since 30 years has passed in real life. Right. Anyways, I just want to know where all the fucking symbols on this thing are. <laughs> now, let's move on and not talk about the the alethiometer for a very long time. <laughs> or at least until next week. I did want to stay on my um, Moses equals Lyra bit from last time. Because uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we keep going with that. <clears throat> with... Lyra kind of getting taken in by Mrs. Coulter and um, the way that Moses was taken in by Pharaoh's daughter and like given the richest clothes and a really good education and basically like made one of the elite people in Egypt, ancient Egypt. Uh, And it's not until Moses sees one of the slave masters beating a Hebrew that he like becomes incensed and uh, attacks the slave master to save the Hebrew person and kills him. And then that, like, ends up getting him kicked out of the Egyptian family and he has to run. And it's when here, when Lyra finds these documents about the oblation board and realizes what Mrs. Coulter is in charge of and just, you know, who she's with and how dangerous all of this is that she needs to run away. So there's continues to be parallels between Moses and Lyra in terms of like adapting a story. Okay, so here's a really difficult question. Mm -hmm. If you could answer without any foreknowledge, 
why do you think Mrs. Coulter took Lyra in? Just from watching this episode, and I guess the previous episode. Yeah, it's a good question, right? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, well, okay, just based on like the information that we have so far. Remember the like text across the screen in episode one that you hated that talks mm-hmm. about the prophecy of the girl who will right. become really or the child who will become really important. I mean, maybe Mrs. Coulter, we can assume that Mrs. Coulter has some foreknowledge that Lyra is the child involved in this prophecy and wants her for that reason. That's true. Yeah, because right away we get this lunch at the Arctic place, and that is where it says the prophecy comes from. And she seems to be in pretty tight with people from up there. So, um, you know, and she's involved with children. We don't know what that whole thing about the children is about. Maybe she is looking for the prophesied one. That's a good point, actually. I do I do love that bit when they're at the Arctic Institute and Lyra is just a complete fangirl. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. That's really good. Is that the Skraling who mapped the currents of the Great Northern Ocean? Hello, Eliza. You know him? Of course. Now come, Lyra. Oxford only had so much, but this... Now, what will you eat? I don't care about food. Well, you might care about food if you were starving. Is that an armored bear skull? I've heard so much about them. Lyra. Lyra. Sit down. I remember when they cut out the talking about the bears in the first episode. I remember thinking to myself, Lyra needs all that knowledge. How, how is she going to get it? But then they very quickly were like, no, she's she's just a fangirl of the North. She knows it. I'm like, okay, I buy that, actually. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> but I was going to say, just with the writing and the acting in this episode, I totally buy that Mrs. Coulter wanted to keep Lyra safe from accidentally getting taken. And that's why she was like, no, I'm going to get this person into my apartment and nobody will take her then. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. But because she, like, is out there, she knows there's people out and about kidnapping children who they think won't be noticed, and Lyra exactly fits that description. Yeah. And, like, you know, what her reasons for caring about Lyra are in particular, the show hasn't gone into yet, but I I do buy that she has, like, a strange affection for her. You know, while it's, it's, it's obviously mixed in with some other not great feelings and other random stuff (laughs) i like that she genuinely does seem to care about lyra that is something that i think is essential to the way that this toxic relationship operates there might be like a temptation to turn these adults into like matilda's parents you know from from the book matilda yeah and just have them be monstrous, which you can do and would probably work. But to have this very much more complicated kind of character in Mrs. Coulter where, you know, she comes back uh, for Lyra and, you know, she has to do that whole thing of like getting out of the office and pretending like she was reading the whole time. And Mrs. Coulter's monkey comes in and pets Pan. Yeah. I, I think there's a way to do that where that is like, 
a domination thing. Like you will be submissive to me and maybe there's a little bit of that going on, but I do genuinely think that that is like, Oh, you, you obediently sat here this whole time and did the thing that I want you to do. I love you now. And there's like a genuine, really fucked up kind of affection, but it's an affection that's going yeah. on. It, it's given her a complexity and given their relationship a complexity that while you might have been able to like read between the lines and find it in the book, it wasn't like explicitly in the book. Mm. So I like that. Uh, while we're talking about Miss Coulter. I was going to say again. Again. Yeah. <laughs> we can't stop. While we're talking about Miss Coulter again. Um, can we talk about that scene with her and Roger? Oh, yeah. Um, yes. It's really good. Because like. Roger clearly recognizes her and is mm-hmm. trying to like not necessarily like extract something from her but just be like I know you and I know you know Lyra and Mrs. Coulter is kind of going along with it but also like not making any promises and then actually I mean the monkey slap is when you know it emotionally but that moment is when you know it intellectually that like she's definitely up to no good yeah i thought that scene was just really well done and i like that roger tried to get a message to lyra but also why would he think that letter was going to be delivered i don't know (laughs) they so they took that element which is in the book of like doing the letters and then burning them and they shifted it to be something a little bit different here because I think mm-hmm. that the whole reason that she goes in there and does that is to sound out Roger, to like find him. We're going to sign each of these letters with our name and like, right. oh, you're Roger. Okay, now I know which one of you is Roger. And then, but in the book, she does it so that the children will trust her and then she burns them so that we know as readers to like, oh, she's fucked up and evil. Mm-hmm. But that's, the, do you think she's marked him in some way? Yeah, I, I just think it's like a really good use of something from the book. It did get me thinking about the choice that they're making there because in the book, what we get is dramatic irony. Like we know that there's a lady out there with a golden monkey kidnapping kids. And then we see Mrs. Coulter with the golden monkey and we're like, oh, no, Lyra. But they're not doing that in the show. Instead, this is a twist reveal that we get in this episode that, you know, we didn't know that she was in charge of this thing until she shows up to get the letters from these kids. And then that's like the 100 percent confirmation that she's in charge of all of this, which is simultaneously happening with Lyra discovering the documents and all of that stuff. So that is like Mm -hmm. a reveal moment. So they treated out the dramatic irony for the twist. And I I think it's actually a weaker choice, the way that Anya was saying last time, that this isn't that big of a twist. They telegraphed it a lot. I don't know if twist is the word. Like, Like, again, I don't think it's a surprise, even if you haven't read the books. I think maybe they what they're trying to do is have the audience's journey mirror Lyra's journey. Yeah. I mean, I also think it just makes more sense logistically that Mrs. Coulter isn't kidnapping individual children by herself. It seems like something that she would delegate. It seems like something she would delegate, except it also seems like something she would enjoy. <laughs> you know? So I can see where, you know, 90% of the time she would delegate, but sometimes she'd be like, yeah, I'm going to go get that one just for fun. Well, and I think you can't actually watch this relationship deteriorate in the same way if you have that 
dramatic irony hanging over your head from the beginning of this episode when they're like sitting next to each other eating breakfast and like so warm and nice with each other to the point where you know at the end of the episode they're sitting across from each other and Lyra is like stabbing her eggs as if to murder Mm -hmm. them Uh, and there's a lot of I didn't even notice that like breakfast to be yeah it's just like the blocking of that you know shifts to Mm -hmm. mirror their emotional relationship my point is like that is breaking down and to have lyra sitting next to her and we know 100 for sure that she's kidnapping kids would be a different kind of tension but wouldn't get us invested exactly like you're saying caitlin in that journey that lyra's on you know, we, we're riding mm-hmm. along with her where things start out good and end really bad. Yeah, I kind of feel bad because I think in the first episode, I talked too candidly about Mrs. Coulter being evil. And I wish that I had like slow rolled that a little more. But <laughs> whoops. <laughs> Just to what? So we did get some of Lyra lying in this episode. Mm-hmm. But I feel like none of them were believed. Yeah. Which- no. Is a big except for maybe, maybe when when she's talking when she brings up dust, and Pan realizes that the monkey's having a different reaction than Mrs. Coulter is having. Yes, electrons. Now the thing about electrons is that they are they are negatively charged particles, sort of like dust, but dust might not be charged. Dust, you know, from space dust. That dust. You see, I do know some things. Well, what do you know about dust, Lyra? It comes from space. It lights people up if you have a special camera to see it by. And... Ah, yes. It doesn't affect children. Who did you learn this from? Just a visiting scholar from New Denmark who came to Jordan. He was talking to the chaplain and I was passing by. I couldn't help but listen. Hmm. Is it right? Well, he told me. Well, I'm sure you know much more about it than I do. <laughs> now, let's get back to these electrons. Hmm? By the way, I did love that moment when Pan kind of communicates this to Lyra and Lyra realizes she has to lie. That was very well done. Yeah. Yeah. Mrs. Coulter might have believed that one. I don't know. But all the other ones were just like fun stories and they Mrs. Coulter almost immediately shot them all down. Yeah. And I just think it's important that we see Lyra lying and people believing her and I don't think they're doing that quite right. They might be going in a different direction. This might not be a part of her capability as a character. And they might be trying to do the- something more realistic in terms of like the you know, the psychological sophistication of the adults around her. She's not playing the innocent kid who she can pull the wool over their eyes, which would be a very different Lyra. Or maybe it's a skill that she's going to develop. Maybe. I just, uh... She better hurry up. We can revisit this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We can revisit this conversation in the spoilers. Was there anything else that we wanted to say about the episode? I had some, uh some philosophical nonsense because this I saw so much stuff with the with the demons and um cuz last time I was saying how like I don't always picture things the way that they say them in the book and I got to admit that like with the demons they're kind of like if they're not talking they're like not there 
when I was imagining the book. And so to have them embodied here to the degree that they are, like, I think I'm understanding a little bit better what Pullman was going for. You know, when we did our book discussion, I was talking about like Rene Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. And like the difference between, Mm -hmm. yeah, your mind and your body are not the same thing. And like, they're kind of separate, different, fundamentally different materials. And I don't think that that's actually what Pullman is going for. Because the demons are bodies. Like, we definitely see that with the reporter who gets killed by her demon getting crushed, her mm-hmm. butterfly. It's It has a body. It can be hurt. And, and we see that in the scene where the monkey wrestles down Pan um, and, mm-hmm. and hurts Pan. So these are bodies, you know, that have, like, material feelings. And I think that that's really important to Pullman that we are, like, embodied creatures we are not spirits or minds which made me think of uh one of my favorite philosophers who um came right after descartes and was very interested in everything that descartes had to say who is uh, spinoza a Sephardic jew who lived in amsterdam and Sephardic jew just means that he's from uh spain And uh, the Spanish Inquisition was going on. And one of the big jobs of the Spanish Inquisition was to hunt down Jewish people and get rid of them because they weren't Christian. And so that's why Spinoza and his family weren't living in Spain anymore. But he got excommunicated from the Jewish community while he was living there because he believed that there is no difference between your mind and your body everything is one thing and that the Bible is just a story and that um, the conceptualization of God is like having a voice or a hand or a human personality is like ridiculous. And so Spinoza's idea of God is that the entire universe collectively from the beginning of time until the end of time and everything that exists in it right now is what God is. The everything of everything is God. And so if you want to know what the thoughts of God are, they include your thoughts. And so therefore, there's no difference really between your mind and your body. They're not different things. They're just two versions of of you, like your right arm and your left arm are different from each other, but they're still you. Pan is not exactly the same thing as Lyra, but Pan and Lyra are definitely one thing. And this is called like psychophysical parallelism. This is like a complicated term for mind-body parallelism. You could think of it like the way that Spinoza thought of it was that your, your mind and your body are perfectly synchronized the way that your shadow would be perfectly synchronized to you. It moves in exactly the same way that you do without any effort. Now, that's not like exactly the same kind of thing as Pan and Lyra. They're like, but they're generally on the same page in terms of like their knowledge. They might be thinking about different things, but they know all the same stuff and kind of like perceive the same things. Right. Everything that I have to say about this is based on book three. It's not his. So I'm not thinking of like his conception of God as as being the same, but just his conception of like. We there's nothing else but bodies out there. 
Like that was Spinoza's big thing. Like everybody's like, oh, there's a heaven and there's spirits and souls. And Spinoza was like, that's trash. The, the only thing that there is is like stars and earth and meat and stuff, you know, like we're not right. There's not like ghosts. There's nothing spooky about God or supernatural. In fact, he didn't even call God God. He just called it nature, like capital N nature. So I think that Pullman would be like on board with that. Yeah, that all makes sense to me. Although the biologist in me, like the physical presence of demons seems problematic for a functioning society in some ways, right? Because if killing someone's demon can kill the person or does kill the person, then that's bad news for all those magisterium dudes with insect demons. Because, like, some animals are way more fragile than other animals. Mm-hmm. I was thinking and that, like, too. That guy has, like, a giant wasp or something, and I was like, yeah. yo, I'd have that thing in, like, a globe or, or something. <laughs> like, Yeah. Like, I wonder in this world, like, what proportion of all deaths come from, like, damage to human versus damage to demon. <laughs> like my butterfly got caught in a car door and I'm like, well, I guess you're dead. Yeah, it just <clears throat> seems like not that helpful for longevity. I think, I mean, if a world really did have demons, it probably would have evolved like culturally wise very different than ours, which obviously Philip Pullman just hasn't done in these books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think there's that. Yeah. Shall we wrap up our non-spoilery section? I think so. So that wraps up all the non-spoilery stuff we have to say about episode two. If you want to avoid spoilers, now's the time to say goodbye. If you like our show, please take some time to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. Follow the show on Twitter at M-O-T-Pod, so you can live tweet Monday night on HBO at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Need more than 280 characters to speak your mind? Send your email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. And now... On to the spoilers. Everyone's special! The conversation about heights. So good. I loved it so much. I, I'm not going to say any more than that because Ani doesn't remember things. <laughs> but it made me so happy. Okay. <laughs> that is putting in these little character touches that are going to come to a really big head in the third book, in the third season. And I love it. Um, speaking of heights... I thought it was interesting that they had her climbing through the, like, ceiling, venting, Mm -hmm. because in the book that obviously happens later on once she's at the station. So I'm wondering if they're going to, like, do something else there or have it again and have it be, like, become Lyra's thing. It's just crawling through the ceiling. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I did also notice that. Um, (laughs) So... Boreal squishes the demon and then opens his hand and the demon is still there. That is problematic for the fucking plot. Maybe, maybe it takes them a while to vanish. 
Maybe. I thought, yeah, I thought it was going to like discorporate into dust. Yeah. In his hand. And then it like didn't happen. And I was like, weird. We get to make a Buffy reference. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I just, that is extremely problematic. Again, I would almost not be worried about it if they hadn't started foreshadowing book three things already. But because they have, I'm like, what? This the, the whole plot of book three <laughs> relies on demons fucking disappearing when you die. Yeah. They can fix that. It can just be like an oversight. But yeah, it was definitely... You're, I, I was watching for it and I was like, mm-hmm. huh, weird. Uh, and again, just like something that kind of bothered me because we have all this stuff with the Magisterium and I don't know if this is an actual spoiler, but they're leaving out so much religion and mentions of god mm-hmm. that like they i get they weren't in really the golden compass but because they've introduced the magisterium so early and everything it's a weird absence to have considering where the story has to go because like the subtext is very quickly going to become text i think that is also a buffy reference yes um <laughs> <laughs> like book two we are going to have actual angels and we're going to talk to them about things right wait really there are angels in that book how do i remember none of this i mean i guess i was like 14 but still i like that it's not too supernatural yet i i like that what they're really focusing on with magisterium is that they're like an institution that they're Mm -hmm. like government and so they're they're really worried about what people are doing are they following our rules or doing what we want them to do in exactly the way that we want them to do it? I actually really like that and that they're not bringing up God too much because they're like, they're doing business. One of the things that I found creepiest about the Magisterium in the books, like for an example, in book three, Father McPhail sends another high up person, like a father person, I don't know, whatever, somebody in the Magisterium to assassinate Lyra. Mm-hmm. But... He makes sure that, you know, this is somebody who's, uh, I forget what the actual thing is called, but like he is pre-punished himself for this sin. So he's still good with God. And that is something that Father McPhail is like worried about for him. You know, like he's like, yes, we want to make sure you're good. You're still good. Heaven is still your place. You're just going to go kill this little girl. <laughs> right. Which you was know? a real thing, by the way. Yeah. You could do that. You could get um, forgiveness for something you haven't done yet. Uh, that's totally a catholic thing in the medieval period and i think a that makes them creepier and b you know it's just sort of part of who they are and a part of what's going on in the world and the story and i think it's weird that they're leaving that out in the first episode like i saw them and i was like i don't who are these guys but then there was the thing in this one where he was like i don't drink tea and i was like oh i remember you (laughs) (laughs) you're that guy Would you like some tea? Thank you. I don't drink tea. No, of course you don't. I meant to bring this up in our non-spoiler section, but Father McPhail is played by Daphne Keene's actual father. What? (laughs) Yes. I didn't know that. (laughs) And I, I think that's hilarious. That is hilarious. And I guess that makes sense that you know his name because he's an actual character in books that are not the one book that I've read recently. Yes. So I just think that that's weird. Oh, and the dude, the dude that's talking to Lord Boreal. I wonder if that's the one that we're going to see. 
yeah. will kill at the beginning of the subtle knife because that'll be cool. Not that will kills them, but I just like that they're bringing in season two so early. It makes me very happy. Oh yeah, that which reminds me, like the snake goes in there and then and then immediately uh, Boreal's like, well that's not him, and I was like, did he like? see some fillings in his teeth or or like the absence of such things and was like nope not him like the dental records don't match or something like that i have no idea what they were going for there when he puts his hand on the skull and is like it's not him i'm like what how how do you know that i'm interested to see if they explain why mrs coulter's demon can go so far away from her for people who've read the books i have not finished the secret commonwealth yet i've started it but the beginning is a bit of a big old downer so <laughs> i'm not uh, getting very far but i do know that that book is very much about people who can separate from their demons um so i'm interested to see if they work any of that in oh so there's a reason why mrs coulter might be able to get far away from her demon and it's not that they've been cut um the like mm-hmm. nurses and caretakers who are um, looking after the children who have been cleaved from their demons or have that mm-hmm. like kind of spacey, weird, distant personality. And I thought that the actress in this episode actually did a really good job of being like yeah, a did. little bit uncanny, but not super uncanny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was um, good. And so, yeah, I was confused how the monkey could get that far away from Miss Coulter without being a space cadet. Um, there are ways to do this that have nothing to do with severing. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yes, that's the word, not cleaving. Yeah, I thought she was she was good too. And I didn't even notice that first time, but the, the second time, um, I, or like the first time I watched the episode, but the second time I watched it, I was like, oh, wait, that's one of the, the people from the station. So she might be. Anyways, I took special note of her. Yeah. Yeah. And it was good to see. But in any way, Lyra was mistaken. She, The monkey wasn't there. It was behind her the whole time. Right, of course. She was just asleep. Yeah. Sleepwalking. She didn't know. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm, I'm interested to see where they're taking that storyline since it wasn't in the book at all. Yeah, maybe they will be changing Mrs. Coulter's knowledge uh, capabilities in terms of like her cultural knowledge to be less problematic. So we're not doing deepest, darkest Africa. We're doing other kind of. Right. I yeah. see. Maybe. Oh, I forgot Maybe. about all of that deepest, darkest Africa shit in the book. I'm glad we're avoiding all that. Well, I'm not saying that we are, but the, you know, oh. like those, what would she, if she can get far, if she can send the monkey far away, then that's like a different knowledge you know, area that's not a deepest, darkest Africa thing. So it's what witches can right. do. So, oh, yeah. But she's not a witch, probably. And there's other stuff in the books. This is like, you know, straight up magic stuff, too. So, like, who knows? Yeah, let's let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Do you like my sign off? I mean, I liked my idea better, but yours is fine. <laughs> Of just being like everyone is special. <laughs> yeah, every single time. And remember, everyone is special. <laughs> I see like Kermit the Frog freaking out, kind of yes. thing in my head yes. when you do that. Yes, <laughs> that was very Kermit <laughs> in the best way. 
All right. So that is our episode for this week. We will see you all next week for episode three. And remember, don't let your whispers become weapons in the wrong hands. And everyone is special. And everyone is special. (laughs)